Hello and welcome to Let's Get Psyched, a program that explores the controversial and challenging issues from a psychological and psychiatric perspective, as well as the implications for clinical practice. I'm your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks of the University of California, University's Council and Psychological Services. And I'm joined by my co-host, child and adolescent psychiatrist, Dr. Toshi Hamaguchi. Hi, Tosha. Hey, Aaron. Third year psychiatry resident, Dr. Alan Atkins. Hi, Alan. Greetings, Aaron. Hello, everybody. And joining us as co-hosts is Dr. Rukaya Malik. Dr. Malik is a UC Riverside second year psychiatry resident. Her interests include psychotherapy and women's health. She currently helps run the psychiatry clinic at the Riverside Free Clinic, which provides a variety of services to the underserved community in Riverside. Rukaya, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Hello, everyone. Hi. The views expressed on Let's Get Psyched are those of the speaker. They do not represent the University of California, UC Riverside's Counseling and Psychological Services, or UCR School of Medicine. Well, on this episode, we're going to put our heads together and talk about very challenging issues of providing care and assistance for the unhoused. And we all have challenging experiences in different positions that we've all held. Um, so this is a good opportunity to do this because we are, have the privilege of having join us Dr. Matt Perry. Matt Perry is a third-year family medical resident at Brown University who lives on Poconocet, Wampanoag, <laughs> and Narragansett. I don't, did I get those right? Three for three. Okay, great. Uh, land, uh, Native American land, also known as Providence, Rhode Island. Their primary clinical interests include working with populations who are unhoused, use drugs, or otherwise operate at social margins. They have previously worked as, as a community health worker and community organizer at the intersections of incarceration, immigration, and public health. Thank you, Matt, for joining us on this episode of Let's Get Psyched. Thank you, Aaron. What a pleasure to be here. I, I, want, I want to kind of start with you a little bit because you're in the thick of it. I, I, since I work with students now, this was like four years ago, I was at a, at a county clinic, I think in the thick of it also. But um, since you're right now in the thick of it, what do you feel is, to you personally, is the most challenging issue that you come across and, and what do you do? So I'm, I'm, I'm all ears right now because I want to know because I, I, I want to be helped with this and learn and develop my skills. I think more, I think broadly, the most challenging thing that I come across all the time is things that among another population might be considered a crisis pop up every day. And I think in order to effectively do this work, I need to modulate what I consider crisis because I think for doctors, especially trainees, right? Those of us who are a little younger and a little bit less experienced, when we go into crisis mode, we tend to go into autocrat mode, right? This person's really sick, so we are gonna do whatever we have to do to get them this medicine. And I think that learning to understand what the sort of like static, chronic health problems that come with living on the street um, and work accordingly from there as a starting point is a totally like necessary emotional shift to do this work effectively and to build relationships. Because when we're in crisis mode, we're not really building trusting long-term relationships. We're like hitting yeah. the little gerbil yeah. or whatever the thing is with the mallet. Matt, can you give an example of something that was a crisis as seen by doctors that you had to sort of more interpret as baseline and how that was? Sure. I, I mean, I think the easiest for a family med doc doing this outreach work, and, and we, I briefly mentioned in the first episode, is like a limb-threatening abscess. Um, so an abscess that could be the size of a grapefruit on someone's arm that has been there for a week 
And I try to take their temperature using the little digital thermometer, but it's cold out, so it freezes, and their heart rate's about 100, so it's not quite tachycardia, but they're showing signs that they might be pretty sick. And they are declining the counseling to go to the hospital. Or they tried to go to the hospital, and they waited in line for six hours, and then they left um, because X, Y, or Z. They went into they went into uh, withdrawal or they had an unsafe situation happen or they went into a panic attack and they left um, and working from there. Yeah, wow, that's, uh, that's profoundly sad. I, had a, I once saw someone with basically that exact situation leave the emergency room and I was, on, I was the, uh, the other side from you. I was the person not on the street and I just kind of watched them leave and thought that's horrible. And then instantly forgot about it and went back to my busy ER duties. Right. I'll, t- I'll tell you one issue that I dealt with quite a bit when I was running a clinic is, okay, so yeah, you have a, a lot of our clients were on disability. So social security disability. So it's about around 850 or so, um, you know, more or less. Sometimes you could get a little lucky if you SSDI where you've worked a little bit. So maybe it's around thousand, but extremely low amount of monthly income. It's not going to get you much housing. Like literally only housing you could get is something called a room and board, which is just a private individual decide to buy a home with um, some rooms that they are now renting out. There's, there's different kinds of restriction. You're not supposed to manage medication and things like that, but it, it's cheaper than a board and care. I, I'm, I hope this is not boring listeners. A board and care is a highly regulated, uh, uh, for, for, uh, it's regulated to kind of housing where you'll have restrict, you have a lot of restrictions and they'll be visited and it's regulated, but a, a room and board is an unregulated area. Now, a lot of folks would get exploited in these places. It'd typically be cheaper. So they would go with that. Um, now, it's a, it's, a, it's a plus and minus thing. A lot of terrible things would go on, a lot of drugs, a lot of terrible conditions. They would be exploited from time to time. But it, I, I had this love-hate relationship with it because, you know, on the one hand, you have folks that are kind of trying to make money off this thing and, and system and offering housing, but it'd be terrible living conditions. But I said, well, is it better than living on the streets? And, and then uh, I, I had board and care folks saying, oh, this is a terrible place. There's terrible things going on. They're managing their medications. Um, but, but, but was it better when they weren't taking medications? I, you know, I, I have a very love-hate relationship. I, I want to know what people think about this issue of, of room and boards, these private folks compared to board and cares and how we, you don't have enough money to have suitable housing nowadays. <laughs> kind of sounds like it's all of the above, right? It, I mean, I think you touched on a really important term in there, which is exploitation. And I think when people don't have economic means, it's so easy to exploit them across labor, housing, medicine, anything, because their means of recourse are so limited. And in terms of the sort of quote unquote, what to do or how to feel about it, it comes back to sort of the, the like cardinal rule of outreach, which is like, what do they want, right? Is this someone who's like, are they approaching you and saying, Aaron, is this, this is a situation I desperately need to get out of? Or are they saying, I'm just tidying this over until I can get into the, like through the public housing wait list or until I can get into a, what was the term you used for the more regulated? Uh, board care. Board, 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 board care. care is the regulated one. And then room and board is the private folks that it's just, it's all eh, anything goes almost. It's like whatever. It's like this private kind of uh, agreement between individual persons, private individual persons. 
Right. And so instead of trying to participate in their decision, how can we support them in accomplishing their goals? So if it's, I just need to get through this room and board thing for six months until I get into a room and care off the wait list, how can you make that situation more tolerable? Is it, I'm only going to provide you a week of medication at a time because there's a risk that someone might steal your meds? Is it, you know, we're going to have every two week telehealth appointments so that I can make, check in and make sure you're safe. How can we make that situation more tenable? Matt, the I'm only going to provide you with a week at a time because someone's going to steal your meds. Is that a good cost saving measure or is that similar to I'm not going to give you money because you might use it to buy drugs? Well, no, it would be something that someone would want. Right. It's, it's something that they're asking for. Right. It's like, hey, is there some, you know, there, hey, doc, there's somebody who keeps like my, my roommate keeps trying to steal my meds. OK, so let, why, do you want to do it a week at a time? It's, it's, the, it's, an, it's mm. a chosen agreement between two people it's not something that's saying i think that you're not responsible with your meds so i'm only going to give you a week so so you, this is in the context of you being hyper respectful of patient autonomy and for providers for for people listening out there it, the being the doctor and initiating that is not a best practice right to to say oh well you have the stigmata of being unhoused therefore i'm going to give you few meds because a lot of times i don't know if this is true or not but i've heard that like you get charged differently co-pays based on the dispensation numbers, right? Like at each pickup, you get a copay. Well, if, if you have in Rhode Island, if you have, we have neighborhood health plan, which is like a community-based Medicaid plan, and there's no co-pays for medications on that. So I think knowing the cool. details of the plan is important, but also speaking more broadly to your point, it depends on your relationship, right? Like I work really closely with a case manager named Ashley, who, she's deeply, deeply in my patient, her client's lives. So if she's going to say to one of her clients, like, I'm only going to give you three days of this med and then I'll see you on Monday and I'll give you the rest because I don't want you to lose it. That's someone who's like in her life in a really meaningful and loving way versus like someone comes in the ER that you've never met before and you say, I'm only going to give you three days of meds because you seem irresponsible. Like that's, that's a world of difference to me. This idea of managing uh, uh, the folks that are addicted um, that would be one of the most common issues that psychiatrists uh, would come to me and discuss, which is, you know, this person I believe is using uh, and, and I'm hesitant to provide any medication. And you can, it, 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 there was a bifurcation in the, in the clinic. Those that were a little bit more free with use, go ahead and prescribe them the antipsychotic medication or whatever medication they needed, if, you know, as long as there's not in a, uh, in a particular interaction that's going to be lethal or anything. Or um, say, no, they need to go to treatment first and they need to complete their treatment and then get and get some clean, a little bit of clean time. Then I'm going to prescribe for them. You know, again, we're talking about homeless folks. What any thoughts, everybody? I don't want to burden on Matt, but you're right there, Matt. I'm looking at you right now. You can go ahead and start, but anyone can jump in on this. Oh, I have so many thoughts. It is <laughs> so hard to get off drugs. It's so hard. It's even harder when you live in an unsafe situation. And it's even harder when you're going through traumatic experiences every day. And so why are we as providers gonna do anything that makes that even harder? You know, And if depriving someone of medications is just gonna make it even harder for them to get into recovery, what are we really doing? Is that a compassionate care? Is it, you know, if it's something that, if there's a real, like you, like you mentioned, if there's a real meaningful interaction and reason not to give someone who's using a specific drug a specific medication, right? Like we're not going to give selective beta blockers to someone using cocaine or whatever it is. You know what I mean? I think 
Oh, if anybody other family medicine uh, does, I don't know that. what you I mean. Think that's but right. I take you your word for it. Um, yeah. Matt, I hear that loud and clear, and I think you're making something sound fairly elitist that I've heard from so many different uh, attendings throughout my training and and whatever, just it all over where there's this whole idea of, oh, well, we can't come to a proper DSM diagnosis without, uh, you know, the patient being off drugs for this long. And I mean, that's by your definition, which I loved of harm reduction is when medical optimization is not possible. And, and, and to bring in the idea that care delayed is care denied, um, who, you know, who's going to wait for these, for these folks to stop being, um, having addiction, which we know is a chronic disease. Rakaya, you wanted to say something? Yes. Um, I think along the thread of patient autonomy, I was thinking about, um, various different cases that I've experienced in the realm of emergency psychiatry. So one thing that I have noted is, um, oftentimes the emergency psychiatry, um, like uh, construct is used as essentially a dumping ground for unhoused folks. Um, so oftentimes um, in California, there's a certain group of people who are allowed to write uh, involuntary holds. We call them 5150s. That's the 72 hour detention. And law enforcement is um, part of that group of people. And that is because a lot of the times law enforcement is interfacing with the community and they're the first, uh, first responders when people are in trouble or if there's a concern in the community. But sometimes there's a question of if that privilege is being misappropriated um, in terms of sometimes you'll have nights where you will have tons and tons of unhoused people being brought to the psychiatric ED and there is not really a psychiatric indication uh, for them being brought there. You ask them why they're there. They don't really know. They just say that, you know, I was just in the community sleeping or just taking up space, being present. And I was, you know, brought here against my will, there's no evidence of psychosis or uh, harm, danger of harming themselves or others. Like sometimes we get roped into being an extension of, of the law. Right. Okay. Where is that coming from? Rukaya? you had a specific word that you had mentioned to us for, for what this is called. And do you have any guesses or clues as to why, what's incentivizing law enforcement to bring in large groups of unhoused folks at a time? So before, when we were discussing it, I was thinking in terms of just kind of sweeping the streets and cleaning it up in terms of um, making it maybe appeasing other community members that maybe don't feel as safe. Um, and we were discussing in terms of the criminalization of you know, that status of being unhoused and how uh, Tosha brought up how oftentimes being unhoused that status, you're basically borderline illegal, right? So there's bordering law. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. uh, Let me just do a uh, show break. You're listening to Let's Get Psyched on KUCR. And we're talking and we're putting all our heads together about challenging situations 
with uh, working with unhoused folks and just in the, the system. And so we just kind of just talked about how police can pick up folks that are unhoused and then uh, drop them off basically because they have the power for 51 to make 5150s to uh, involuntary psychiatric holds. And then the doctor, um, Rakaya is kind of left there like, okay, we, we have these folks that kind of don't know sometimes what, what's going on or, or why they're brought there. And Matt, you had a comment about what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, it's such a, the idea of the criminalization of homelessness and its relationship to mental health care is so loaded. I mean, there's so many things that are a daily part of living if you're living on the street that are illegal, like loitering, trespassing, panhandling. Like, I don't, I don't know what the panhandling ordinances are in Southern California, but there it is illegal some places such that in terms of like law enforcement incentives at any point, a law enforcement officer could make the call that someone's doing something illegal because simply just not having a safe place to sleep is illegal. And I think the really interesting place that it comes up in mental health care is right. Like sometimes the psych psychiatry, specifically the psych emergency room and inpatient psych is used as an extension of prisons in that it's a place where people are brought when they're, when they're found to be indigent, whether that be cognitive, like mentally, psychologically or legally indigent. Right. And so they're being stripped of their autonomy and their rights and put in a certain place against their will. Um, and, and law enforcement is being told in a lot of cases, I think by superiors, I don't know the, I mean, I actually, I do know, I have guesses at some of the incentives behind this, but that there's this thing called a compassionate arrest. And, you know, we have lots of really well-meaning law enforcement who are choosing psych hospital rather than jail. And we're called because of psychosis or something like that. Um, and, they're an extension of this, you know, and, and what Matt said about the psych hospitals being an extension of the prisons and the prisons in California, at least, are an extension of the psych hospitals. And neither is doing a good job with neither right now, unfortunately. Right. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of like what you could do, it's such a tough call. I think that there's like, you know, advocacy and activism level things that we can do to try to, you know, just there's just a general disdain for homeless folks, unfortunately. So like, why are people calling the cops on a group of, of people who are without housing? Because so, they make us uncomfortable. Right. So what I have um, tried to do in those types of situations is be as professional and as um, compassionate as I can be. So no matter, you know, what is written, I always talk with um, the person and ask them, you know, what happened from your perspective? And I give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, and I try to maintain um, as much of their um, autonomy as I can. Um, obviously, as a resident, you're working with uh, an attending and it's not your call in terms of the final outcome. Um, but I do try to present everything as I see it as honestly as I can in good faith. And a lot of times people are brought from their homes, right? You can be unhoused, but still have a home. They're taken from their homes, brought to our facility, and we have a wide catchment area. So they may be you know, 50 plus miles away from where they call home and then getting them back there 
can often be a challenge in terms of getting them a ride. So um, if I can, trying to at least restore them to a place where they feel comfortable um, and, you know, just regular things offering, would you like a blanket? Would you like something to eat, something to drink, things like that? Um, I found to be effective because you can run into a difficult situation where they've already kind of been brought against their will. And now you are seen as another barrier to their um, freedom and independence. You know, when I was at the clinic, um, like I just kind of uh, go off what you're saying, Kaya, it was very common that when homeless folks would come in, we would promise them to buy them a meal if they came back for their, like they, they would come in and then we'd give them an injection that, you know, for, you know, you know, we would, if they had enough history, we could give them even a, a long-term injection with a, where they wouldn't have to constantly keep coming back, but we would buy them a meal. Now, technically we shouldn't have done that, but it was so logical and reasonable for us to do it that we just went ahead and did it. We were, we were, we were not supposed to use our monies for that, but we, but we did. And now that I'm out of the County, I can say stuff like that, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I think that's totally fine. Do, do people think that that's, that's fine, that there should be, you can just go ahead and buy meals for folks to, to come back and get a shot. I don't know about using your own funds, but there is research that shows that incentive programs are effective and it doesn't have to be, you know, a large amount, like in terms of smoking, if they've done studies where um, they give people the same resources, right? So they'll have the control group, they get either the patch or the gum, and then they'll have another group where they get the same, you know, the patch or the gum, but then maybe you'll give them a movie voucher every time they come in and they say, you know, I've stayed away from the um, smoking, I'm doing well. And they found that even something as small as a movie voucher regardless of the patient's socioeconomic status. So even if it's hey, someone- man, movies are expensive that, these days, like- <laughs> right, yeah. It's yeah. a lot of money. Yeah, right. and, and I don't know about y'all, but I've, I've certainly done a whole lot of different lectures and, and other things simply because there was uh, a lunch involved. Food. Yeah. <laughs> I think the, I think that, I feel like two things come up for me with that example, Aaron. One is just- to back away from our professionalization, like how can it ever be a bad thing just to buy somebody a meal if they're hungry? Um, let's just like connect with our basic humanity. I think the, the place where it does get tricky is if you're using rewards to coerce people to do certain things that they don't want to do, right? Like, and, and I think like a long acting injectable antipsychotic is a particularly interesting case where if someone does have autonomy, if we're coercing them to use that medication, that's a little, that can be a little dangerous. So I think as long as the meal is like conditional on you coming back, but not like you need to get your shot first and then we'll give you the meal. You know, this is, mm -hmm. I think there's a subtle but important difference there. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. I that's see cool. that. Yeah. And also not using your own personal money. This is like a slush fund that we oh, had sure. access to. I, sure. I, another good point by Rakaya. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Okay. So I'll go next. Um, I was thinking about what I could bring to this discussion, this like kind of case conference, if you will. Um, so I don't have one particular case, but it, just in general, you know, coming from the perspective of a child adolescent psychiatrist, I, um, I see a lot outpatient and inpatient of families who are just having the roughest go of it. You know, um, parents aren't getting along with kids, kids aren't getting along with 
parents and they're both parties are at their wits end and parents are ready to call it quits like you know either right then and there or if if you get arrested one more time da 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 right um or if you get um what is it expelled from school one more time or whatever whatever it may be um and i you know it's it it comes back to you know it's gotten so far now it's we're just in dire straits at this point it's hard to like walk them back from a cliff or or offer them something that's going to work right then and there and there just isn't there just isn't i feel like a great solution so far i mean off the top of my head you know we can recommend wrap around um we can recommend uh, emergency shelters. We have a couple that I can think of that take teens uh, as long as they're, you know, willing to go or and their parents are willing to have them there for they will take them there for like 30 days or so um, or, you know, surrender to CPS or group homes. Parents can pay out of pocket to send their kids to group homes. Um, those are just the the kind of options off the top of my head when we get that far gone but yeah do you guys have any thoughts on that quite a very sad situation so sad i wonder how much of that i think anyone this i to me this this is starts as a check your privilege kind of thing right because you take any set of parents and you level the set of challenges on them that some of the parents at marginalized, super ultra low socially, socioeconomic status um, levels are dealing with. And a lot of people are going to be wanting to surrender their kids. A lot of people are going to feel that they can't do it anymore. Right. And so I, I wonder if this is just another one of those things. I mean, actually, I'm not going to wonder. This is just another one of those things where if we had invested more as a country in social services um, to the point where we could help people with their kids actually being at home, giving them great things like um, PCIT, which I'll plug our other episodes, Mm -hmm. um, but giving them food and giving them housing and, and, you know, all of these other things um, we would probably be saving ourselves money, not just in the long term, but in the short term and, you know, to, to bring about, I like that Matt reintroduced like the moral idea as if that, you know, as if that's like so alien to bring in, uh, let's just help these people out before they give us their kid and say, let child protection take over. I think the, uh, I, I absolutely agree with everything you just said, Alan. And I think it's a really, a really tough conundrum, Tosha. The one thing I'll say is like, It's just, I think it speaks more broadly to the importance of this, particularly in our two fields of medicine, family medicine and psychiatry, of knowing the landscape of where you are. What are the social services organizations of this area? What are the organizations that offer case management to youth? What are the emergency shelter options for youth in this area? You know, I think like, because especially as residents, sometimes we just get dropped into a new place and it's like, go, you know, and we're sort of in this vacuum of a hospital and I certainly am not an expert on this family dynamic issue and don't know what to do with it, but there's probably somewhere out there, you know, in, you know, somewhere 15 mile radius of me that, that can help. Maybe. Yeah. Before we um, uh, leave this discussion, 
do you have, uh, do you want to give a shout out, Matt, to different organizations that um, are helpful that you feel are doing good work? Yeah. So in, in Rhode Island, I work in partnership with uh, this group called Ocean State Advocacy, and they have sort of two projects. I work primarily with Harm Redux, which does harm reduction services and, and uh uh, outreach services for people without housing and people who use drugs. And there's also their twin organization is called Ocean State, which is a, a, a mutual aid project for uh, sex workers who have been affected by the pandemic. So OceanStateAdvocacy.org, they have lots of educational materials on their Instagram. Um, and uh, yeah, check it out. Thank you. That can, is I a you can I ask you a final question though? I, I was going to ask this earlier that I forgot. Um, when, what are your thoughts about when people ask for money uh, this is like about, I'd say two thirds of the folks I know say, don't give them money because they're just going to use them for drugs. I tend to go ahead and give them a few dollars or whatever. But, uh, I, but what do you believe as far as someone that you work, that works with unhoused folks? What do you think? Is there a general policy or do you do more of that? Do you try to strike up a conversation, try to learn a little bit more? Well, how do you handle that? If it's someone I don't know, I just give them money. Um, if it's someone I work with regularly, I tend to have the policy of not bringing cash and I'll buy somebody a meal, I'll buy somebody Dunkin' Donuts, coffee, but I don't give cash to my, my patients or people that I see on outreach. But it's like, I think uh, another psychiatrist I worked with, Craig Kaufman, once said to me, I love traveling because I can finally give cash to the folks who are asking for money. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all the time we have for this edition of Let's Get Psyched. Today, we talked about uh, the unhoused, working with unhoused and how, how challenging it is. And we all kind of shared our experiences with our, our special co-host, uh, Rakaya Malik. Thanks, Rakaya. Thank you for having me. And our special guest, Dr. Matt Perry. Thanks, Matt, for joining us. Thank you. I really enjoyed my time. And also thank you to our co-hosts, Drs. Toshi Yamaguchi and Alan Atkins. If you have comments, questions, suggestions for the show, you can write us at GetPsyched on KUCR at gmail.com and you can listen to past episodes of Let's Get Psyched on your favorite streaming platform. If you like tonight's show, please follow us and post a review. This episode was recorded remotely in our homes. Our producer is Elliot Fong. I've been your host, psychologist, Dr. Aaron Parks. Tune in next week for another edition of Let's Get Psyched.